My mother was a woman of tremendous integrity. My mother was curious, sensitive, compassionate, honest, always there for us, unflappable, loyal, complicated. She is devoted, resilient, dazzling, giving, vivacious, extraordinary. My mother actually met my father when he was the artillery commander, and they were shooting at her plane. Welcome to Our Mothers Ourselves, a weekly conversation about one extraordinary mother. I'm Katie Hafner, and I'm your host. Lillian Yonnelly loved nothing more than flying a B-25, and when she was 21, she couldn't figure out why any woman in her right mind would choose a man over a plane. Lillian was part of a small and select corps of female pilots during World War II called the WASP. That stands for Women Air Force Service Pilots. The WASP picked up the slack at home when all the male pilots went overseas. They trained male pilots. They tested new planes. They flew damaged planes back to base for repair. They flew in bad weather and landed on unlighted runways at night. Many of them died but it took decades before the WASP were recognized for their service to the country. Lillian Yonnelly is one of the few WASPs still alive. She's almost a 100. Today, I'm talking with Lynn Yonnelly, one of Lillian's six children. Lynn, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast to talk to me about your mom. Thank you. I love this series. Thank you so much. I wanted to ask you... um, As you were growing up, what kinds of stories would your mom tell you about having done this amazing thing? She never told us. I was actually in conversation with my sister this morning, and I said to her, when did you realize, uh, you know, what mom had done during World War II? And she said, you know, I don't really remember her ever saying anything. And I said, I don't either. All the time growing up, we sort of knew that she flew, but we never, ever heard any stories. The first time I know I can go back and and really put a pin in it is when I was 27 years old. It was when the WASP finally got organized and said we should have our veteran status, and she started writing letters. And when she said that, I was like, what do you mean? And she started talking. So you, when she said WASP, you had no idea what she was talking about at first. We sort of knew that it had to do with flying and the military, but we had no idea what it meant, what those letters meant. My mother always deferred anything about World War II to my father and his experience. And what, it, what was his experience? My mother actually met my father, when he was the artillery commander, and they were shooting at her plane, and um, they got whoa, a little... Whoa, 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 back up for a second. All right, so we need to explain what that means, that okay. they were shooting at her plane. He joined the Army, just like many people, left college, and um, went out to the Mojave Desert to train uh, with an artillery unit, and... Um, my mother at that time was 
flying B-25s, tow target. Tow target means that you are pulling a sleeve about 30 feet behind your plane, and the new recruits would dip their um, bullets in a color, and then they would shoot live ammunition at that sleeve, and they would determine you know, how good they were by how many hits they had on the sleeve. Okay, let's stop. Let's stop there for one second because I happen to have queued up your mother actually talking about this uh, from an interview that she did for. Um, it sounds like it was an oral history project. And what's amazing to me is that she's sitting there. She looks like this very demure little old lady in her eighties, sitting there in her lovely. Uh, looks like kind of a seersucker blouse. You'd think she'd be talking, reminiscing about her quilting bees. <laughs> and here she is talking about her toe targets. Here yeah. she is. So imagine this little lady with her, I think they're pearl earrings. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> okay, here we go. Now, I didn't know what toe target was going to be. Uh, you, you'd fly with a tow reel operator in the stern of the airplane, and they let the sleeve out from there when you're on course. Tow for four hours, two two-hour shifts for the guys down below, and then fire live, live ammunition at the sleeve, so. How long did you do that for? Most all of the time. Okay, so these were women. Let's, okay, let's, let's dial back, and then we're gonna come back to your mom and your dad and the, and the tow planes. So your mother, this thing that she really never talked about with her six children, was that she joined, it's called the Women Air Force Force Service Pilots. Right, Air Force Service Pilots. Correct. The WASP. And they were pilots or would-be pilots? No, they were all pilots. They Mm -hmm. had to have their pilot's uh, license and had to have a certain number of hours of flight. And this was World War II, Pearl Harbor had happened. 1943. And the idea was that because there would be a shortage of men to do the things that needed to be done with the with planes domestically. They could transport planes from the factories to the bases. Um, my mother was the first class to be trained on B-25s which then went on to be tow targets. And the army was not sure that the women could do it. And so it was an experiment. Mm -hmm. And so your mom, one thing that's very interesting about the WASP is that a lot of women wanted to do it and not many women made it through the program. Correct. 25,000 women applied. Only a a little more than 1,100 made it through the training, and became actual WASPs. What we have determined since is that there was actually kind of a quiet number that they were looking for. So her best friend washed out the day before graduation. Washed out meaning didn't make it? Didn't make it. That's right. And my mom has often said she was a better pilot than I was. Remember that these women did not question. They were honored to be asked to do what they did. And right up until now, my mom is 98 years old, and she will tell you it was an honor to do it. Let's get down to the nitty gritty of what they did in their jobs, uh, particularly um, 
the tow targets? So tow target is where you're training the artillery to be better at shooting. And so, like I said, they have a sleeve that they pick up behind them, which she was indicating, which you're coming down the field and then they then the sleeve goes out from behind your, your plane. But that kind of snap um, means that you've got to throttle up really fast. And she often talked about that. And she, you just don't have any clue as to what that would feel like. But then you fly in a formation for two hours with people shooting at you. And then you come down and they assess how well they did. Some of these women had their toes shot. Oh, yeah. Had their feet shot. Yeah. Or what she would say also is if they shot the um, the wire that was holding that sleeve, you would suddenly be thrust forward and you had to compensate. And Because guess, it was severed. It severed yeah, the sleeve. exactly. So mm-hmm. you didn't have that drag anymore. The story that we've kind of grew up with was that dad shot her down. We didn't know what he meant by that. It was always a joke. And she would just kind of laugh. Well, over the years after when they got their military status, suddenly she opened up. So when she uh, started to open up, it was much later in life. Oh, and then was it like, oh, it was like the dam burst. That's the other thing. She snuck her camera into basic training and took it with her. And she took color slides of her service. Color was just coming into being used. And she has these amazing photos. So she snuck the camera in and she snuck it in because it was secretive what they were doing. They were not allowed to take any pictures because, of course, the army was not sure that this experiment was going to uh, succeed. This experiment of women flying the planes. Okay. Uh, And so would they have had egg on their face if they had tried it and it had failed and women turned out to be not daring enough or courageous enough or tough enough? (laughs) Tough enough. (laughs) Their training was unbelievable. This was a group of women that supported each other so much through the training and through everything else. And when they came together again, they're the most humble group of women, fierce women that I've ever, ever come in contact with. I was fortunate. I probably went to 10 or 15 reunions. I went to Sweetwater with her. and they Sweetwater. Just, Sweetwater, Texas, is where they trained. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just... They were amazing women. It's a, a group of women that just hold each other up. Each class was proud to be themselves. She was in the seventh class, right? Yes. Yeah. She graduated from, um, in class 1943. Mm-hmm. So when she says in that um, little snippet that I played for you, she said, oh, I, uh, he asked, how long did you do the um the towing of the targets. Mm -hmm. And she said, Oh, most of the time, sort of like, just matter of fact, like, and this is how you make a peach cobbler. I keep it in the oven. Yes. (laughs) That and that's how she talked about it. I mean, and she was um, in service because she was in the seventh class. She graduated May of 1943. And they were disbanded in December of 1943. 44. So she had some of the longest service, which is also unique. Um, You know, I mean, they were disbanded rapidly 
in December of 1944. To give you a little background, which I think is also part of the story of my mom, is that she was a child of divorced parents, and so um, her childhood was difficult. And when she was 15, her father remarried. Back up a little bit. She was born in 1922. Correct. In Lynn, Massachusetts. She then They then moved to New Bedford, um, which is made famous by Moby Dick and other things. <laughs> yes. She had a sister that was born when she was two and a half. Mm-hmm. When her parents divorced, her mother was Canadian, lived in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and the judge awarded my aunt to the mother and awarded my mother to her father. So they were separated. Was that just a, some standard procedure in those days? I think my grandfather, coming from a wealthy, well-known family in New Bedford, um, was given one of the children because the judge was probably on his side. You should read the newspaper article about this divorce, and this one, this woman from Canada had the gall to divorce Jack Lorraine. And where did their wealth come from? My great-grandfather immigrated from England as a penniless orphan and, um, and landed in Illinois and then went bankrupt three times. And his best friend said, you need to go to New Bedford. It's the wealthiest city on the East Coast. And in those days, it was because of the whaling business. And he established a coffee and tea business. So he traveled all over the world, collecting the best coffee and the best tea and opened up Lorraine's Good Coffee. All right. So your poor mother, she's buffeted by this unfortunate situation. So then she went to boarding school in Providence, Rhode Island. That was because her father remarried and her new stepmother, that was part of the deal, that she would not have to deal with this 15-year-old teenager. I'm sure it was very difficult. But the other thing was that for her birthday, um, before she left for boarding school, her dad said, what would you like? And she said, I want flying lessons. And he gave her that. And apparently uh, catches the flying bug. Right. Now, part of that agreement also was that my mother would never again live at home. The agreement being, I'll give you flying lessons if you fly the coop entirely? Is that Well, I I think... um, I don't think the flying lessons were in compensation, but um, from there on, um, her home was not with her father. Oh, that is tragic. It yes, yes, it is. She um, when she was when she graduated from high school from the boarding school, she was sent to New York to Catherine Gibbs Secretarial School because um, the family felt that she needed a way to support herself. So when she was at Catherine Gibbs Secretarial School, she became an executive secretary and went to work for Grumman Aircraft on Long Island. While at Grumman, she got bored sitting behind a desk and just doing secretarial work. So her boss said, you know, there's an opening in the control tower. Would you like to be a control tower operator? And so she is probably one of the first if not the only woman from that era that was a control tower operator. She actually 
got a call in from someone that used the letters CL and kept saying, I need to land. And she kept saying, I'm the control tower operator. And he kept saying, I need to talk to the control tower operator and finds out that it's Charles Lindbergh. And he didn't believe that she was in the control tower, that a woman was was, uh, guiding him in. And finally, he had to just accept it. Exactly. And then he came up and met her. And do you know how the meeting went? I don't. (laughs) I mean, Charles Lindbergh, from what we also know, had a very strong wife who also flew. So he probably was like, okay, fine. I don't know Mm -hmm. for sure. but Mm -hmm. So what year would that have been? Probably 1942 or early 1943. Mm -hmm. So she heard about this, the wasp. It must have somehow, there must have been some kind of way of hearing that this was starting. She was connected to the flying community through Grumman. All right. So she goes through her training. This is every bit as tough on the women as it was on the men. They did the same training, but the men who came into that training had no aviation background. They were not pilots. So the women had the same training, but they already had their pilot's license and many hours. But they were they did the same physical, the same um, mental, the same classes. It was arduous. Uh, there is, um, I have to call it a propaganda film about the wasps that was made in the 40s. And it mm-hmm. shows them with this very jaunty music. Yes. And, and they look like they're just having a jolly little time. Uh, and then the the narrator of this, the voiceover, says, oh, isn't she pretty? Oh, yeah. it, it is invaluable footage, mm-hmm. but it's galling. But it's the 1940s. We have to put it in context. Let's just do a little rundown on what it is that the, that the WASP were expected to do. They, they ferried, a lot of them ferried planes. Right. You would pick the plane up as it was rolled off the assembly line. So it was untested. Untested. They would give you your orders and you would fly it to whatever military base you were told to fly it to. They would also be training in planes that often came back from overseas that had been damaged. So I know my mom talked often about you always walked around the plane. You looked at everything. Um, She said she only rejected a plane once because that was not something they were encouraged to do. Why weren't they encouraged to reject a plane? Because it would mean that maybe a woman couldn't fly it. It just wasn't done. But if it was, um, if the plane was damaged and shouldn't have been flown. There were women that were killed. Uh, That's not okay, I think. No. Again, they did not, they didn't talk about that. To them, that was just part of the cost of the war. But then about halfway through um, the 1980s and 1990s, you could tell that they were changing, as was our culture toward women. And they started getting a little more militant about the women that had been killed. 38 women lost their lives in accidents and a variety of ways. The military did not honor them during that time. In fact, the family had to pay for the casket. Yep, or the girls did. Yeah, mm-hmm. the girls often collect enough enough money to send one of the wasps with the casket so that the girl wouldn't go home alone. So when your mother started talking about her service to the country as a wasp, did it 
make you see her in a new light? Uh, <laughs> um, I guess because of the way she grew up, she always did um, talk about her life and how difficult it was when she was when her father remarried. You just knew that this person was a very strong individual and that she just accepted whatever came and did the best she could. So when she started talking about her service, it somehow didn't surprise us. Sometimes she just blew me away with the way she would talk about it so matter-of-factly. But that was what she taught us, too, is that you accept what life throws at you and you do the best you can and just move forward. One thing I was going to ask you is, if you were given one word to describe your mother, what would that word be? Fortitude. Mm-hmm. Because? She never gives up. Mm-hmm. My mother has stage four kidney disease, and she has congestive heart failure at the nth degree. Over the last year, she has had many strokes. She wakes up, she gets up out of bed, she washes her face, and she says, what's next? And that is what made her an amazing World War II pilot. <laughs> yes. Right? <laughs> yep. Yeah, she just doesn't give up. Speaking of how much she loved flying, she uh, there was. A, I wanted to read you this funny quote. She made the interviewer laugh when she was talking about um, training on a um, a B twenty five, and she said, "Yeah, we all went to Mesa Field in Sacramento, and we all got through the training except for one girl who found the guy she wanted to marry." And then she's, your mother says, and I can't imagine taking a guy over an airplane. I mean, those B-25s were beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And she often said that. Why would she? Because she met my dad. She had met my dad at that point. But she wouldn't have taken him over a plane. And yet, when she started having us, when she had my oldest brother, that was the end. Let's dial back for one second, then we'll talk about when she gave it all up. So you're, he did actually shoot at her. Set this scene up for me. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure what happened during the training session, but from what I understand, his unit came a little too close, and she was upset. So when she landed, she went to find the captain in charge of that artillery unit, which was my father. And she decided to give him what for, um, which my mother was very good at. And you mean a, a piece of her mind. Oh, for sure. And when you say they came a little too close, you mean that their bullets came too close to the plane? Yes. Is that right? Yes. Um, um, anyway, so they had this, you know, he, she gave him a piece of her mind and he listened and then he asked her out. She exudes confidence in the photographs I've seen, certainly not demure. Right? <laughs> no, no. Although she was raised by a Victorian grandmother, she certainly made sure that we knew our manners. So there must have been a mutual attraction. And, they, and he got a Jeep for the evening. Okay. And a bottle of champagne. Uh-huh. And she proceeded to drink champagne and fall asleep. <laughs> and he, being a Midwestern gentleman, took her home. Mm-hmm. So he went off mm -hmm. in 1943 to, to France, Germany, Italy, then was transported through the Panama Canal to Korea. And then at the end of the Korean War came home. And married your mom? And married my mom, yep. Oh, and well, now during that time, 
you know, the war for her had ended in December of 44. The war ended for her in 1944 because she, because the, the wasps were, were disbanded. De- yeah, December of 1944. So she went back and got a job on Long Island, again, working in the aircraft industry, owned a plane with two other guys, um, was having a really good time. And um, often told us that there was this other guy that was really interesting. And when my dad got back home and called her, she dropped everything. To be with him. Yep. She Mm. sold her piece of the plane. Mm. And then she proceeded to have six children. (laughs) Well, she had four of us between 1947 and 1952. And then my brother was born on her 40th birthday. In the car, my oldest brother delivered him. Was he a doctor? No, he wasn't. (laughs) He was 14. (laughs) Oh. When she got pregnant, she decided it was time for all of us to know how this happened and what happens when a baby is developing and... Oh, we knew everything and we had a stethoscope. We listened to the baby's heartbeat. We, you know, but we didn't know that we were going to be witnessing a full birth. Okay. So she was really a total firecracker of a mom. She, we knew when we became teenagers, she talked openly about sexual life and what it was like and, you know, everything that you needed to know. We used the correct words. And this was in the 60s. Yep, 60s and 70s. We had diagrams. <laughs> you had diagrams? Yep. Uh-huh. We knew what a vagina was. I felt so bad for my friends that didn't know and whose parents wouldn't talk about it. It's such a part of your life. Mm-hmm. And did you say, well, I happen to have these diagrams that my mother uh, gave me? You had to be careful. <laughs> right. Did she, um, did she stop flying when she had the kids? Yes. Yep, she totally became a 1950s housewife. She would sew our shorts during the summer. They didn't have a lot of money. Um, so we all dressed in red, white, and blue because you could be um, either male or female, and you could hand down the clothes. So we would all wear red, white, and blue. And it's patriotic. I guess, yes. Yeah. And she had no bitterness that she had not pursued a career, say, at Grumman or as a commercial pilot. Now, I do believe, talking with my sister again this morning, I said, we never, we never had it voiced, but underlying everything, there was a sense of dissatisfaction. And when my dad died, my mom was left in a difficult position, and she went back to work. Doing what? My dad owned a liquor store, and she ran the liquor store. She worked part-time for a lawyer, and she also was a consumer price indexer for the U.S. government. At one time, was holding three jobs in order to hold the family together. Even though you didn't know she was a wasp, it was, you know, there's something there, that that, uh, steely backbone of a woman that you just look into her eyes and like, well, first of all, you didn't misbehave. And secondly, you did the best you could. That was just the way it was. There was Mm -hmm. no question. My girls, I have two daughters and they, when I was teaching full time in the same town, my mom took a walk every morning and she said, those girls are not going to be driven to school. I'm going to walk them because I walk every morning. They can walk with me to school. Was there winter where they... uh... (laughs) Yes, they actually did walk uphill both ways in snowstorms. It's uh, Messina, New York is up on the Canadian border. 
about 45 minutes south of Montreal. And we, during January and February, it would be 30 below for six to eight weeks at a time. And they walked every day. And is that where she lives now, your mom? She lives outside of Albany, New York. The VA hospital in Albany, New York is extraordinary. And they have treated her like a queen. Now that we're on the subject of veteran status and benefits, VA benefits, so WASP were granted veteran status with full benefits in 1977, finally. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. And then in 2010, about 200 of the surviving pilots were presented with the Congressional Gold Medal by President Obama. Was your mother there? Oh, yes. And all six of us and all of the grandchildren except one. You know, when you saw them all standing, you knew that you were witnessing something that wouldn't happen again. Wouldn't happen again because? You'd never get that many of them together again. And it was the most extraordinary moment when they played the national anthem and those women all stood up. But when those women stood up from their walkers and their canes and everything else and sang the national anthem, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. Do you know how many of the wasps are still alive? Less than 30. Mm. We're down to a very small number. What service she gave to the country. What an American. Yes. I'm just proud. Well... Thank you, Lynn, so much for talking to me about your mom. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. And that's it this week for Our Mothers Ourselves. Our theme song is composed and performed by Andrea Perry. Paula Mangin is our artist-in-residence. And Elizabeth Kay is the show's producer. If you have an amazing mother to suggest for the podcast, send an email to ourmothersourselves at gmail.com. Our Mothers Ourselves is a production of Odredeck Studios. I'm Katie Hafner, and I'm your host. Have a great week, everyone, and stay safe.